Jamie Lewis, and this is Consumed, candid conversations about life and flavor. Before we get into it, I want to share a bit about our sponsor. The inaugural season of Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life Magazine. Now in its 10th year, Slow Life Magazine celebrates the culture of San Luis Obispo with features on the people, influences, products, and businesses that keep this city moving and shaking. I've written the food column in Slow Life Magazine since 2015, where I cover restaurants and food trends here. And over the years, I've seen how devoted Slow Life Magazine's following really is. Readers love learning about their community and weaving into the fabric of this very special place. To learn how you can subscribe, be sure to visit their website at slowlifemagazine.com. The Central Coast of California is so lucky to have Bridget Binns, a writer, cook, teacher, and recipe developer who has authored over 30 cookbooks for the likes of Sunset Magazine, Williams-Sonoma, and Celebrity Chefs, in addition to many under her own name. Having traveled widely, she and her husband settled in Paso Robles, where they own Refugio, a luxurious vacation rental property, along with a spacious teaching kitchen. Bridget invited me into her home to talk about how she grew up, why she was kicked out of boarding school, her appreciation for science fiction, and why she loves living in Paso Robles. Listener note, this was a really good interview. I'm just warning you. Okay, here's my chat with Bridget. So, Bridget, um, I, I'm trying to think the first time I knew about you was um, I was walking with Grace Lorenzen, and she said, you know about Bridget Benz, right? And I said, <laughs> you know, I've seen that name. And then I recalled that you were writing the food column for 805 Living. That's right. Yeah. So that was, uh, hi, Jamie. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> the first person to welcome me and thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I haven't done that for about a year and a half now, but I think mm-hmm. I did it for three years or something like oh, that. Oh, did you really? Yeah. That long. Yeah. It was fun, but I, I was ready to move on to, to the next. I actually got a really huge book project, and yeah. so I told her that I would have to take an extended break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Grace said, um, do you realize that she's written scads, like dozens of cookbooks, <laughs> and not just cookbooks for yourself, but cookbooks under the auspices of like Sunset Magazine, Williams-Sonoma, others, I'm and sure. Other, and chefs. I mean, that's, yeah. um, that was a huge part of my, my oeuvre or whatever we say, uh, is that I'm the, the alter ego of a, a chef. And I did that a lot at the beginning. And I sort of burnt out on it and said I would never do it again until I recently got an two different offers that I couldn't possibly refuse. Mm. And one of them is super exciting based on local sensibilities, and that's Clark Staub. Oh, I was going to say, are you able to talk about... Clark is doing a book. Well, yeah. I mean, this is all very new. Okay. Um, But I'm just so excited about it. To me, it's the opportunity to be creative instead of corporate. And he's just such a, a fascinating, interesting, untrained, inspired chef uh, that I really look forward to doing that as a as a self published. That is awesome. Option, yeah, which frees your hands totally. I mean, you mentioned William Sonoma, and mm-hmm. I have that. There is no 
sorry, no creativity mm-hmm. involved there at all. The, the editors are super fantastic, incredibly switched on. They know what the American public wants at any given year. And so we work together, but they are the drivers. Mm. Uh, and so I love when I can do a book where I get to, to input and guide and, and really be involved and, and do some whimsical, rustic stuff. And so anyway, I'm super excited about that. Yeah. And will the, so the recipes will come from Clark? Oh, yes. 100%. Okay. But yeah. you will help him. Um, well, we probably shouldn't talk too much about no. it, should we? No, we'll just watch it develop. Yeah. Well, and you talk about William Sonoma. Um, you gave me the book Cooking in Season. Mm. and um, That's so pretty. Isn't that a beautiful book? The photography's insane. And it kind of is a testament to how important good photography is for a cookbook. Because, I mean, I remember I have multiple cookbooks that have no photography at all. And you can intuit how good something will be, but that cookbook, I mean... Yeah. The richness of the colors, even down to the backgrounds, are so beautiful. And it's one of the books that I have dog-eared almost every page, which is pointless at that point. (laughs) You just know you you want to do something on every page. Yes. (laughs) And I love a seasonally organized cookbook. It was really fun to work on. It's funny, when when they approached me to do that, um, I thought, and they gave me their preliminary recipe list, which is how we do things. And then then I give input, and then we end up with a, a collaboration at the end. Uh, I said, these guys are obsessed with squash. <laughs> and then by the end of the project, I was obsessed with squash. Yeah. So they, that's what I mean. These editors are so smart and they're yeah. so switched on. Uh, I loved working on that book. And it sort of, it, it changed my, my way of looking at food. I was getting into a rut mm. and uh, it really opened my eyes to incredible ingredients that I hadn't really used, like squash, that I hadn't yeah. um, used as much as I should be using. How long did that book take to write? I think, you know, they never give me very much time. Uh, I think it was about maybe six months. Uh, One time they gave me, I know, I know. One time they gave me the slow, the new slow cooker book, which is like two inches thick. It's a huge tome. And I had two months to do 150 recipes. And it was quite amazing. Uh, The thing that was kind of interesting about it is that I was staying with my mother in Los Angeles, who was not well. Mm -hmm. And I was staying in my childhood bedroom um, and I don't know what I would have done without, the, I drove across the country because her caretaker said, if you want to spend some time with your mother before she dies, you better get your ass out here right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I drove across. I was really broke at the time. I'd stay with friends all across the country. And on the way, I got the call to do the slow cooker book. And then they told me the deadline. I was like, well, I, I how to, what? <laughs> so I was like, Okay. Yeah, <laughs> happy to do it. And then when I got to her house, when I arrived there, there were two slow cookers waiting for me that they had sent. Uh, and, awesome. I, it, 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 and I spent the whole time I was there chopping and simmering. And mm. I had them go, both of the slow cookers going day and night. And I went to Costco and, you know, got the bulk onions. And every night at around midnight, I would package up the leftovers and label each one with reheating instructions and when I left there I left her with a fully stocked freezer and she she lived for another two years and had something great to eat every night oh my gosh that must have felt good on lots of levels it did feel good on lots of levels especially considering my relationship with my mother which you may recall was not blissful yeah um she said why why are you chopping all the time I said (laughs) 
It's my job, mom. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, difficult, not really intuitive as a job, but uh, yeah. but that was that really kept me alive. And I remember writing something about the comfort of carrots when I was dicing these little carrots, and and I could see her little head sitting on her favorite sofa, opening the mail, which took like three hours mm-hmm. every day. And I thought, you know, thank God for carrots. Seriously, and a sharp <laughs> knife. Uh huh. Back up to now that you mentioned your mom. I mean, back up to where did you grow up? I grew up in West LA, um, going to a series of private schools for various reasons. One is because I got expelled from Ojai Valley Boarding School when I was like 12 for leading a moratorium demonstration. Um, oh, wait, <laughs> a moratorium demonstration because, for Ojai or for the school? No, it was it was uh, Vietnam. That's how old I am. So I was twelve when the first moratorium day happened, and I, you know, got involved, of course, yeah. and then got expelled. My parents were actually very supportive of me at that point, but it put me out into public school, and then I couldn't stay there, and so then I had to go to another private school, and I got out of of West LA permanently when I was about fourteen. Where'd you go? I went to boarding school in Sedona, Arizona, which was a fantastic character building experience. I just got back from there last weekend, meeting with um, a small group of my inner circle from those days. That's awesome. What made that school different from the other ones? It was a super hippie school. Mm. Uh, We did, all the students did all the work. It was very, very progressive. We had field trips every spring for three weeks to go. the school broke up into groups of 10. I mean, there was only, student body was only 100 people, so yeah. it wasn't, uh, and I went to, people would work in the inner city in Phoenix or go live with an Indian tribe somewhere uh, or go on a outward bound type of thing. I went to the Grand Canyon uh, for a three-week, 150-mile hike on the first year I was there, and then the second year, my, my little, a little group did a, Northwest Indian driving tour. So we drove out in this little school van and then drove all the way up the coast of Vancouver. And um, that was probably instilled in me that that delight in driving mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I've always had. Yeah. But it was, it was I skipped a grade for some ridiculous reason. I don't know why, because you're always in such a hurry at that age to get up and get going. Yeah. And I could have stayed there for three years, but I only stayed for two. That's amazing that you're in touch with your cohort still well there were basically no adults there Mm. so we we were you know hormone addled uh 16 to 19 year olds let loose in the middle of the red rock country it sounds terrifying and we kind of had to raise each other and ourselves and it created an absolutely unbreakable bond between Mm. us it sounds like I mean I didn't I didn't know any of that about your early (laughs) education um it sounds like that may have informed also your I don't know I think of you as somebody who's been a lot of places you know (laughs) a wanderlust yeah Yeah, definitely and your parents maybe had something to do with that too yeah, they were pretty well traveled, and we went we went to Italy when I was uh, boy it was a busy year when I was twelve. Um, we went on the ship, the Italian line, the Leonardo da Vinci. My parents went in first class, and my half sister and I were in 
you know, steerage. Mm. And there was nobody, speaking of food remembers, remembrances, there was nobody there to tell me what to eat because my half-sister was only two years older than, or four years older than me. She was supposed to be my chaperone. But I ate fettuccine Alfredo for two meals a day for like 11 days. And I got off the, the boat. I'm 12. My dad goes, are you pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> no, dad, I... <laughs> I'm cream sauced. <laughs> yeah. I just developed an affinity with fettuccine Alfredo. That's all. Was that the first time you had had it? Or it was just that no, no one was watching? Nobody was watching. And yeah. it was there. You could order anything you wanted. Yeah. And I mean, ships are kind of still like that. Yes, sadly. Yeah. So so you went to, um, did you wind up in Italy? Is that what you were saying? Yes. Yes, you yes. went there. We landed in, in Cannes and got a car and drove over and we were renting somebody's house, some English couple that worked for the World Health Organization. We rented their house for a couple of months. My dad was an, an actor. And, you know, actors, the way they can pretty much guarantee that they'll get work mm. is by planning to go somewhere else. And huh. so the minute they plan a vacation with their family, they'll get some kind of fabulous job. But in this case... It was It Takes a Thief, which you're too young to remember, but mm. it was Bob Wagner um, yes. series, very fun series. And it was shooting like 20 miles from where our rental house was. And mm. he got five episodes of It Takes a Thief and managed to combine that with the vacation, which How is cool some is kind of insane. I think they may have known that he was going to Italy and that, that they wouldn't have to pay for his transport or something. I, but it was kind of crazy. What was it like being the daughter of an actor? That sounds wild. I don't know. Well, all I know is he died on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea one time, and I was sitting on the sofa, and I was like seven or eight, and I was crying, crying, oh. crying. He was sitting right next to me. But I hadn't figured it out quite yet. Yeah. That, or maybe I was younger than that. It was, he was always home, unemployed actors. That's what mm. I'm, I shouldn't say this, but I'm sort of married to one. Mm -hmm. And they spend a lot of time at home, which mm -hmm. can be great. Lots of chores get done. But also I grew up without, my mother didn't have a normal job either. She was a, a writer, or a, trying to be a writer. And so I grew up without the awareness that parents usually go out to work every day. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, and, and then I think about you and your life now, which is episodic, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you could say that <laughs> after three husbands. Yeah. Each well, one no, of those I was an your, episode. No, I mean your work. The fact that it's, you know, you, you work on a project and then it's done and then you're ramping up for a project and yes. then it's done and they overlap. Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. so it sounds like it was probably quite similar to the way that you grew up. It, 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 it was, and I did have a normal job for a while uh, on Wall Street. Oh, you did? In New York, yeah. Doing what? Obviously in New York. Where else is Wall Street? <laughs> well, I guess... Uh, that I Wall was... Street or the Wall Street? No. <laughs> well, I started out, I went there to try to get a job doing something to do with China because I had majored in Chinese studies. What? Yeah. Really? But it was too early in our development with China for somebody with only a BA to actually get any real work. If I had had a master's degree in Chinese studies, I could have found a job. Mm. So I looked, I worked for a temping agency for a couple of months, basically, so I could use their word processor and send my resume out to everybody looking for this job. And then this job wasn't happening. And so I took a temp gig at Morgan Stanley just to shake things up a little bit. And then they offered me 
um, a job as a sales assistant on the retail brokers floor, which are, sometimes people call those guys the dance floor brokers. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was offered a job by World Council of Churches to go back to Hong Kong, where I had spent six months as part of my Chinese study, and work in the Vietnamese refugee camps in Hong Kong, um, sort of supervising the cooking fires and making sure that the people didn't build fires in their own individual uh, living quarters because it was dangerous. So mm -hmm. it was to try to, people were desperately trying to maintain their family connection by cooking as a family. And the people who were running these ancient, you know, barracks left over from God knows what, they were really rickety and they wanted everybody to do their cooking fires in this central courtyard. And I thought, you know, I weighed about 90 pounds at the time, and, I, and I, 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 my eyebrows aren't bushy enough to do this job. But it was a big, mm. it was a big um, moment of, am I going to work for Morgan Stanley for $14,000 a year, or am I going to work for World Council of Churches for $4,000 a year and go back to Hong Kong where I kind of really would like to be, but it doesn't really sound like I would be very good at that job. Mm. Um, so I wrote and wrote and wrote in my journal the pluses and minuses and stuff. I always do those when there's big decisions to be made. But I ended up taking the Morgan Stanley job. Mm. And then I ended up marrying one of the traders from Morgan Stanley's London office. Ah. And that's how I got to England. And that's how I got to professional cooking school. So see it all. It's all there's a. Now I see, because I, I was going to ask, I knew that you wound up in England, but how? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because he said, you don't have to work. And I'm like, what? You don't have to work? What does that mean? I don't even understand that. And he actually, it turned out he didn't want me to work in the, um, when I left New York, I was the odd lot trader on the equity desk on the trading floor. Mm -hmm. And he was worried that there might be blowback to hurt him uh. by hurting me. And so he didn't actually want me. And that was the only thing I was qualified to do at that point was work in on the trading floor mm -hmm. or in a, in an investment bank. Yeah. Wow. I have so. a couple cousins who worked on the floor. Uh -huh. Um, I'm my mom's cousins. Um, yeah, they talk a lot about, uh, gender on the floor, especially, yeah. you know, seventies, eighties. Yeah. I was like the, it was me and seven guys named Vinny. <laughs> Of course it was. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so, so when you left that, because it was in your husband's best interest that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you got to England, what was the, what was the thought process to lead to cooking school? Well, I had always wanted to, I was always interested. I, my mother was a pretty good cook and I would be her backup. You know, I had to string all the string beans and do all the chopping and stuff. And I realized that you could make people happy by cooking. And so it was something that I always dabbled in. When I was in, in the Grand Canyon and we did a solo where for three days I'm alone with some granola and a tarp. And um, all I did was write letters to my mother about her fantastic lamb stew. Uh, I knew that there was food. And then when I lived in New York City, I would give dinner parties on my rooftop so there was always food in my life, and it made sense to me that given a chance to do something different where I didn't have to work, that getting some formal training would be, would be the right move. And it, it wasn't chef school. It was more something that only really exists in England. It's not a finishing school, but it's a school for people who 
most of them would go on to cook for directors' dining rooms. Very popular thing in England is that they don't want their people going out to lunch, so they provide a pretty sophisticated in-house dining. Mm. And so most of the girls that I went to school with, and maybe like two guys, were training to go off, and then one of them ended up working for Marks and Spencer's, developing um, the packaged food, which is a great job. And then the other one went back to Australia and did catering. People would do catering or director's dining rooms. Mm. And so that's when I ended up unceremoniously um, moving to Spain. I supported us by catering. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, so this was with your first husband. He Did yeah. he get a post in Spain? No, he got decide? fired by Morgan Stanley. And ah. he said he could never work. And uh, they call in, in, in London, the city is what is uh, the equivalent of Wall Street. And he said, I can never work in the city again Mm. because he was disgraced. And so I said, okay, well, we're going to pack up and we're going to move to this little cottage that we had bought in Spain that wasn't even really designed for year-round living. But Mm. um, So that's what we did. And he he didn't work for a while, maybe a year or so. And uh, so I did a lot of catering. How do you know about, I mean, what, why Spain? Uh, we, because the weather in England is so appalling and it was, the plan was to do this thing in Spain and then fix it up a little bit and then flip it and then buy something in the South of France. I never really intended to end up in Spain, but Mm -hmm. that, you know, got sort of derailed by his, his descent. Mm -hmm. Um, and he eventually ended up being the tennis coach at a local country club but meanwhile I was supporting us with catering hmm. and catering for families catering for events events and that was a very Brit-centric area hmm. expats everywhere the little strip of land on the coast where a lot of people didn't even bother to learn to speak Spanish yeah and so I was very popular, although I refused to do sausage rolls, which is what all Brits always want all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to my friends in England. Yeah, right. <laughs> I hope they're listening to this. Yeah. That would be amazing. Oh, we can talk about the white food next. Oh, man. Yeah, white and probably some brown in there, too. Absolutely. A little brown for contrast. You did. Um, is that when you started writing and editing? In no. No, I didn't. Um, I was only in Spain for three years, Mm -hmm. and it became clear that I I couldn't stay. I mean, I didn't leave right away. I think I get credit for staying for three years, but it wasn't my cup of tea, and he turned out to be not a very, uh, not to have much of a backbone. Mm -hmm. So I moved to Los Angeles by myself and immediately started sending my resume around to the top restaurants in L.A. saying, uh, I'd like to write your cookbook for you. Wow. And I guess I was very lucky that Joachim Splichal mm. of Patina mm-hmm. looked at my resume and saw, oh, 10 years in Europe, professional cooking school. And he gave me a chance. And so that was really a major starter for this part of my career, which has lasted for quite 30 books and a few years now. But at the same time as I was working on the Patina book, I was friends with a woman named Ellen Rose who owned the Cook's Library in L.A. for many years, a Mm. a cookbook shop near the Beverly Center. And she said, you know what? Somebody needs to write a polenta book. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. How about me? (laughs) (laughs) I have an idea. And she had a contact with a woman at 
Chronicle Books in San Francisco and gave me the name and I wrote a proposal and they bought it. Wow. So those were both happening at the same time and that was just an amazing thing to me. Mm. You know, it's funny, Casey asked me this morning of the happiest times in my life and when I got that Polenta book, tiny little book, 40 recipes, trade paperback, which means it has a glossy cover but it's not a hard cover. Yeah. And no photos, probably. Oh, no, it did. It had oh, lovely it? photos. Oh, yeah. Not a, t- awesome. not a lot of them, but gorgeous. Mm. And and I, I got to be me. I got to write headnotes as me. I didn't realize how rare that was going to be yeah. in the years coming forward. But very personal stuff. And I, I was just, I, I had no idea what was going to come after that, but it was so... And at the time, I was working for Angeli Restaurants, the woman named Evan Kleiman, chef. Yes. she That was my boss for the no. first couple of years I was in L.A. Oh. I worked as her assistant when I first got off the plane and full-time for not very long. And then I became part-time because I started to get work in books. Mm-hmm. And then I became her wine buyer for all four of her restaurants. You're blowing so she, my mind here. <laughs> she is she's such, my mentor. She is, um, <laughs> she's very special. I think I listened to Good Food, the podcast. Well, it's not a podcast, it's a radio show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I respect so much, uh, first of all, it's longevity. I mean, the fact that it's been on for so long and that she, um, I like the way she treats people. Mm-hmm. I like the way she asks and, I mean, absolutely inspired my desire to just have long conversations with people in food. Oh yeah. So that's yeah. pretty cool. She's the sweetest. And I knew mm-hmm. her mom and uh, I mean the, her, the Angeli was a big family. Yeah. It was a wonderful, she gathers the most amazing people around mm. her. Yeah. And I actually, Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger had been doing good food before her. And I was working on their show too hot tamales and they said we need somebody to take over because we can't do good food anymore and I suggested Evan you're not (laughs) oh my gosh that is so amazing that's just so funny I know it's scary it's a small world the LA food world yeah and I mean what do you make of what LA has become in terms of just it's it's people are calling it the food capital of the U.S. now Um, I just don't have much of a reason to go down there anymore, but every time I read about something new, I mean, did you know that new tartine space was a $23 million, I can't even believe Three times the size of the the one in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah, the manufacturing. That's huge already. It kind of, it's like, I'm getting the sense I could be completely wrong. I haven't been there, but Mm. I'm getting the sense it's almost like Italy. That concept of it's, it feels like a culinary amusement park in a way. (laughs) Which is a thing now. That's great. Yeah. I love it. I used yeah. to love going to Italy and New York. I mean, that was where I lived more more recently mm-hmm. um, in terms of big cities. But I'm feeling now like I need to, I'm going to get out of date. Well, I'm already sort of out of date. But I need to go and get a little Airbnb somewhere in LA mm-hmm. and spend at least three days yeah. running around and seeing stuff like that. And I want to go to this and that and the other and... I have friends that have successful restaurants down there now I that bet. I hardly ever get to go to unless I'm on the way to the airport. Right. Um, and that's never yeah. a good time to go out. No. Although if you deposit your car at LAX and then get an Uber back to, say, Venice or Mar Vista, where my really good buddy who married Clark Staub has her restaurant called the Mar Vista, then, 
And as long as you do the timing right, it can be very relaxing because then you know you're just going back to the LAX in an Uber and getting on a plane all night long and sleeping. Mm, that's a good plan, actually. Um, the LA Times, um, you know, it's one of those rare stories where a newsprint newspaper is actually re how do you how would I say this like reclaiming their status as an authority they are making money and a lot of it has to do with the food section but there was no food section at all until just recently they brought it back that's amazing which is incredible and I I was looking at the the front piece of that new standalone section and it's a whole cartoonish map of you know the LA area and where to eat and I just I feel like wow, it's reinvigorated and it's inspiring because I think a lot of people consider us Southern California. I know we have nothing on what's going on down there, but I'd love to kind of be a hangers on. And- Absolutely. And you're amazing me by telling me this and oh. I will get to work. I will go ahead and I mean, I, I already have the Guardian, the Washington Post, New York mm-hmm. Times, but I will add the LA Times to my subscription because that's so exciting. It is exciting. I mean, uh, Charlie Perry when I when I did the patina book Charlie Perry was part of the LA Times and he was a alumni of Rolling Stone in the early Mm, days mm -hmm. with Jan Lenner and all that stuff he was an amazing writer and then um who's the guy that I oh Russ Parsons who's still out there and I correspond with him occasionally but I don't know any of the people at the new food section at the LA Times it's very I mean I think I'm older than a lot of the people there and uh which yeah. I really respect. I I mm-hmm. respect that they take a risk on people who um I don't know. They're like recent grads from journalism school. Well, I think a they, lot of them. They take a risk but they also keep it cheap, which is hard for mm. people like us who have the longevity and the chops and mm. et cetera, and have much to contribute. But on the other hand, if we don't invest in these younger people and credit them, um then we're going nowhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also it sounds like you've made some choices that were good for your life in terms of doing these books. It was a, if it, it seems to me that that's a very healthy, um, and I don't know, wholehearted decision to do things that you can have at home and, and still remain keyed into what's happening in the world. Well, unless you seclude yourself in an ivory tower and never mm. go to LA and don't know what's going on. <laughs> I mean, when you're writing at home, you're not, you're not in an office environment sharing with people, but you do share, especially now you do share with a lot of other Facebook I know is for old people, but I have a huge network of cookbook, author, restaurant, people, chef, um, stuff in there. You know, I remember my my niece was, I think, the youngest ever executive editor at Ten Speed Press. Oh man, that's I yeah. got her the job, and she wanted a high stress. And I'm like, okay, well, if you want that, but she had a friend who said, oh, I see your aunt is uh, feeding at the William Sonoma trough, and I thought that's always resonated with me because if I had had, if I hadn't had to work so hard, if I hadn't had to support myself, I would have stayed home and pitched more Bridget books, Mm -hmm. more like The Relaxed Kitchen, Mm -hmm. more like Polenta, things where I got to say, speak in my own voice. But I didn't have that luxury. So I had to hit it constantly, go with the Williams-Sonoma stuff. I've developed uh, 400 recipes for Weber Mm. uh, over the past nine years. And that is regular work. It's like normal work. You know, it's X number of recipes per year. And 
I can almost, you know, if I put a bunch of that stuff together, I can almost live on it, mm. which is amazing, but it doesn't leave me with a legacy of personal books. Right. I've, I've been, one book that I worked on was nominated for an award, but I've never won a, a Beard or an IACP award. And if I'd had that luxury, which a lot of, I mean, I think we all know this, a lot of prominent writers, food writers, are married to wealthy yeah. people of whatever sex that might be and uh have more luxury to stay home and and conceive but that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be working on Clark's book is because I think uh this other book that I'm working on now for Meathead gives me the flexibility financial flexibility to, to do a passion project and I watched my dad do that my entire as I was growing up he would do television that he hated in order to be able to work on the stage Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of people do that, mm-hmm. or at least I, the ones who are very serious about theater. Yeah. Have to. Yeah. Um, that passion project. I mean, when I, when I first came up here and had lunch with you, um, I think I had just taken the job with edible slow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I wanted you to write for it. Um, I felt like you'd be doing us a great favor and I really loved what you said about, I mean, you said something like, I'm not interested in developing recipes without adding my voice. You were interested in a personal essay. And what you gave us was so um, so moving. And I think a big part of the reason it was moving is it was honest about your relationship with your parents, um, which might be scary to do, um, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it was also... I love the way you and a a few of my favorite writers weave in either an ingredient or a flavor memory or, um, you know, a muscle memory about cooking something. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about maybe how you developed that story for me. Well, first I have to say thank you because I rarely get a chance to write like that. Yeah. It's it's such a huge deal and such a blessing and just uh, I wish I could do more of that. It was really fun Good. to work on that. Yeah. I did it because you and I talked about what you wanted. It was the seafood issue. Mm-hmm. And so it was pretty easy for me to go back in my head and think about emotions. I mean, anytime you talk about the California coast, it takes me right back to the Hollister Ranch mm-hmm. where I spent so much time as a kid, because my mother had met some Hollisters in boarding school, the same boarding school I was kicked out of, actually. Um, And she became sort of an extended member of the Hollister family. And so by the time I was growing up, we were spending a lot of time there. And we used to go and pick the mussels off of the rocks and throw them in a cheap aluminum pot with some butter and some wine and like open, you see them open up and it was so orange and And then later, after my parents were no longer speaking, and I didn't get to see my dad for a while, that experience of meeting him at the Grand Central Oyster Bar, where you just were recently, (laughs) um, was, it gave us a shared language that we could find a way to connect with each other, that he could talk to me about his, how much he loved the cherry stone clams and the and all the New England because he was always an East Coast boy. My mother was a West Coast girl, and that was his. If 
by that time he wasn't spending time in California anymore. He was just on the East Coast. And it was such a wonderful way to reconnect with him, to find him, to, to see after the mother was no longer in the picture and just to talk about nothing to do with her but about our shared, as I was launching out into the world and he was staying where he wanted to be so that it was easy to go there and you let me do it, which I really appreciate. I think that we need, I, I think that every human being just wants to be heard. I mean, so much of what we do is just listen to me and then I think we all kind of wear um, a sign around our necks that says, love me. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we turn it over, but it's, it's always <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> right. But I, I think that writing, I like to write that way also. Um, there are not many opportunities to do it in any way that someone will get to read it or discover it. That's true, although when I first started my blog, it was in 06, so I was an early blogger, and the blogosphere was pretty small at that point, point. Yeah. and social media was still a great way to connect people with it, and I did have a small but devoted following, and I drove, that was because I was driving across the country twice a year, and to keep myself entertained, I wrote my blog. I think I became a better writer because I disciplined myself to do it. And I knew that nobody, you know, it wasn't going to get national exposure, although Huffington Post called it one of the best food and wine websites. But that awesome. was ages ago. It was wonderful to have some recognition. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, people followed me. And so I wrote. And I wrote about musings on the road. And nobody was editing me. Mm. And it really allowed me to get in touch with a writer that I didn't know was inside there. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, I mean, we, we've all heard this. If you cultivate it, it will grow. A lot of blogs have grown into huge, huge, uh, I mean, the pioneer woman. It's become business. I mean, so much of it has. It's become business. It yeah. was not business. Then. I had no yeah. ads, I, you know. But it was so much fun. It's still out there. Yeah. It's, it's archived, but it's it's searchable. What tell, Say what the URL is again. Roadfoodie.com. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You don't add anything to it anymore? No. I don't have, I don't have the discipline anymore. Yeah. I waste too much time <laughs> on social media and shopping online and mm -hmm. reading. I read like a book a week. What are you reading right now? I'm reading something called The Water Cure, mm. which is a first-time novel it's got aspects of of speculative fiction to it but it's very um encrypted mm. that's all I'll say right now because I'm only about a third of the way yeah through it what's the last thing you read that you were really really excited about well you know they're making it this was a while ago but they're making a movie of the goldfinch <gasps> oh I I just got <laughs> that's one of my top five all time I, I had a hard time getting through that book because I was so moved. I was constantly having to stop. I mean, I just, yeah. And I have a lot of friends who did not enjoy that book. Really? Who I referred What's it to. What's not to enjoy? Oh, oh my gosh. The last, I know my mom is listening to this. My mom and I are book buddies. Um, and she loved it. But that last bit with it, it's Boris, um, the Eastern European guy, I think, uh, right? Or he's Polish. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh-huh talking about a concept of God 
and it's this soliloquy and it, I mean, even just thinking about it, I start to get really choked up because Mm. it was so accurate and abstract at the same time. Mm. Um, and then this, the scene at the end when the mom shows up in his, in that situation. And I, that book is so special. Oh, I'm, I'm amazed that, that, that would, that, that we share that. Um, what was your experience with that book? Well, I just loved it. I mean, it was, I don't know how many years ago. And the reason I'm thinking about it again now is because my husband's manager manages the little boy actor who's playing the little boy. And so I just saw a lineup recently of four of the, four of the actors. Are we, should we be delighted with that list? Um, Do you like that list? Yes. I mean, most of them are people that I didn't know much about before. Uh, I can't remember who the older, who are playing the older people, Yeah, but um, it's, just go ahead and Google it. I mean, it's all yeah. known already. Um, the other one that I, that, I mean, I read a lot of science fiction, hard yes. science fiction, because I just can't stop myself <laughs> since I was like 14. Mm-hmm. But the other non-sci-fi thing that I read recently was A Gentleman in Moscow. My husband read that and he really enjoyed it. It's fantastic. Yeah. And I just saw on CBS Sunday morning, Amor Tolls, who's the, the, author and he also wrote rules of civility which is a great book but he visited that hotel in moscow and they they have like a picture of him on the wall and they have the little tours and you can go upstairs into the attic is it historical fiction i thought that it was all it's all fiction oh it is but they've created this persona correct oh that's awesome (laughs) awesome and kind of funny well it's a great story because it's about this very wealthy russian count who gets after the revolution, gets um, he's under house arrest in this fancy hotel basically for the rest of his life because the Soviets say, if you come out, we'll kill you. We don't want to kill you, so you just have to stay in there forever and ever. And, and he, he starts out with this huge suite, and then he ends yeah. up in this garret upstairs, but he comes, what's fascinating is he becomes the maitre d' yes, in the fancy right. restaurant. And of course, he knows so much about the nobility and the wealthy that he's the best maitre d' ever and he just switches roles, and it's yeah. kind of inspiring. My husband said that there was he he kept you know we're laying laying in bed reading our own books, and he keeps saying you got to read this. The food descriptions, I mean, it's very like Escoffier. It's yes. very classical. Uh huh. Um, yeah, he said that the food mm-hmm. in it is just remarkable. And then the sadness when they can no longer get that food because yes. Soviet rule and and et cetera, everything changes, and right. it's a, it's like an insider history of the Soviet Union slash Russia. Um, from a, from a gourmet, from a social, from a, it's just really, okay, you've got to read it. I think I mean, <laughs> I'm going to need to read that. Um, you said that you were driving back and forth on the coast. And if I remember correctly, is that because you had a house in Hudson Valley and then you had, um, a life here on the West coast anyway? Yes. Well, I, when, when, when I agreed to move to upstate New York, um, it was, it was perhaps not my best decision. Hmm. But I always said from the beginning that I would refuse to spend the winter there. And for the first year, that whole episode lasted about five years. First year, my husband would come back and forth with me and we, we rented a granny flat from a friend of ours who lived in Topanga Canyon. Hmm. And then he got this great job at the new school, so he couldn't come anymore, but I wasn't going to give it up. So I would drive alone with my lovely dog, Stella. Mm. And I drove because 
I didn't want Stella to fly on an airplane and I needed my knives and my shoes and all. I mean, it was, I packed the car to the brim with all kinds of comfort stuff and then rented a place every, every winter. So I did that for six years. So that was 12 drives. Wow. That's a lot of years. I mean, that's a lot to, a lot of miles. And sometimes he would fly in, like he would fly into Colorado uh, to Denver and I would pick him up and he would drive with me for two days and then he would drive, he would fly back to New York from Nashville or something. What was his job at the new school? He was teaching, directing and acting in the master's program. Cool. It was a great job. That's why I was just in New York. I went to the new school for a food writing forum that was, I had never been in that building before. It's a really, that's a cool curriculum. I mean, that's a very cool spot. It's a, it's an amazing school. Yeah. And he was lucky and talented and the students just absolutely adored him and he's still in touch with all kinds of them. In fact, one of his students is, um, started off as something or other on Game of Thrones in the second season and is now an executive producer. I just saw last night, Brian Cogman. He, um, so he's got ex-students all over the industry in every possible way, which is wonderful. It is wonderful. And he does indie films. If one of them asks him, can you appear as an actor in my indie film? He does it every time. He's very gifted. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a number of his things and then just his voice work. He's very natural. He is. You know, his voice sounds like my dad too. Of course. (laughs) How did you two meet? You and Casey? In a bar in Santa Monica. As one does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> and how long have you been married? Um, we are just about to go back to Italy to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary oh, this summer. Man. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Because that's where you got married, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where, where exactly were you? Rada in Chianti, which is uh, in between Florence and Siena. It's a little village. And we were just looking for the perfect little mini hotel to take over. Yeah. It sounds awful. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go it's rough. by I'm, any means. I'm planning it now. <laughs> oh, man. I love that Italy has a special place in my we're, heart. We're just incredibly lucky. Mm-hmm. I can't even believe how lucky we are. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you wind up in Paso? Because um, it reminds me of the Hollister Ranch. Oh, I mean, really? that's the short answer. Yeah. But also, I saw, I wanted to do a book about the region and... I felt that it was important to move here. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the, the uh, irreverent answer. I couldn't go back to L.A. There's no possible way that I could go back to L.A. I can't stand it. Although I want to go back and see what's going on restaurant-wise, but I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't live there. And uh, I was writing this book here, and it reminds me of the Hollister Ranch. And also because I saw in 2010... I saw a growing wine region that did not have a national cookbook author. There's a million of them up in Napa and Sonoma. And I loved the idea of hitching my wagon to a rising star. Mm -hmm. And I knew that as the recession receded from our memory that the Central Coast would continue its rise as a respected wine region, and I wanted to be a food person mm-hmm. involved with that wine region. Yeah. And Casey was on board? No. Um. <laughs> Not really, because yes. he had that great job at the new school, yeah. and he wasn't willing to disconnect from New York. So we spent about two years 
having two households. And he would come whenever he could. He did a lot of commuting. I mean, it was very stressful. Uh, and then eventually, we, ha- we had a conversation about it and said, either I can insist that he come to California, in which case we probably wouldn't stay married, or he could insist that I stay in New York and I would be miserable and cranky and bitter and twisted and that would be the end of that. Or we could try to find some sort of middle ground. I mean, if we had been... 25, I don't think that would have worked out. But we're older and more sanguine about what's important in life. And then he just sort of, after about two years of that, he said, I I just don't want to be in New York anymore. There's no, he said the only time he was happy was when he was in the studio with the kids. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the time he was just eating too much, drinking too much, and spending too much money. And then with all that air travel, it was kind of canceling itself out. Mm. So he agreed to disconnect from there and come here. And it didn't hurt that he had become the Paso wine man. Yeah, exactly. Accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> How was that accidental? Well, I met, I was sitting at um, Villa Creek at the bar at Villa Creek having dinner by myself. And next to me was another single person, Dina Mandy, having dinner by herself. Really? And we started talking and realized that we shared 8 million things, including living in Venice at the same time mm-hmm. and going to the same bar down there without ever meeting. And she said, well, you know, I'm developing this video um, for Paso Wine Alliance, and I wonder if Casey might have a look at the script. So he had a look at the script, and he said, I can't have anything to do with this. Um, It's sophomoric. It's not not getting your message across. And they said, well, what what do you suggest? So he sent it to one of his students overnight, one of his writing students in New York, who happens to be a Californian, Zay Amsbury. And Zay turned it around in like 24 hours and came back with that very first one, the mm. Zinfandel yeah. video. Yeah. And Wine Alliance was was confident enough to green light it. And we shot it in like a day. Mm. And he had to fly back to New York the next day. So we had to get it get it done, which is a great motivator. Yeah. And it sort of went viral. That is so, it <laughs> is such a good campaign. But I didn't realize it all came from the bar at Via Creek. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you're now getting the through line with me, right? Yeah. <laughs> And you know, you bring up a Dina. Oh my gosh, this dog is so darling. Isn't she pretty. What's her name again? Lucy. Lucy. A <laughs> pumpkin. Oh, look at that tail go. She's um, happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dina would be a great person to talk to you on here. She's she's amazing. Yeah. The unsinkable Dina Mandy. Oh. So talented. So motivated. She she never gets um. What's the word? Flustered. Mm. Hmm. And I've seen her managing video shoots. They they shot an actual short form movie. Mm. Most of it takes place here in this house. Really, called The Heart of Paradise, which has been nominated for a million awards for short film. Oh, I didn't know about uh, that. Casey wrote and stars in it. Dina produced and directed. Actually, Casey was part of production. But anyway, it's a lovely, lovely, very moving little piece. Can 30, you find 30 it minutes. Um, I'm not sure that it's, I don't think you can, you have to go to a film festival yeah. or it's possible that maybe it's findable now that it's been in wide release for a while. I'll have to ask mm. him. Heart of Paradise. Okay. And we brought in, they brought in professional actors. Yeah. 
That's so for, cool. Yeah, and we put them all up here. And it's been quite a collaboration between Casey and Dina. Yeah. They don't always see eye to eye. But anyway, she never gets flapped. Yeah. Yeah, those no people are like gold. Yep. I, are you flappable? Um, not so much anymore. I remember a photo shoot here for a wine enthusiast where I had to do like 89 time release shots for a pizza thing. Oh, jeez. And I was <laughs> a little flapped. <laughs> <laughs> Ever so slightly flapped. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've had, well, so we should talk about this place too. So you've really, was the house, the house was already built, right? The house was built, but it was very Orange County, vanilla, you know, cottage cheese finishes everywhere. And then down the hill, there was a very large garage disguised Mm -hmm. on the outside to look like a guest house. And I think that's why Casey kind of was so excited about this because he said, well, I could turn that into a you know, rustic industrial cooking venue kitchen for Bridget and then put two luxurious suites on the edge. And um, that's what turned into Refugio Paso Robles. And I, people just love it. I mean, it is a, it's like a home kitchen on steroids. It really is. <laughs> it really is. And it's set up just, uh, I like the way that it's set up very much for you in just the way you want. And there's always something beautiful about a space that's you know, it's like Julia Child's counters, mm. you know, and her funky pegboard kitchen where it was for her. And mm. this feels very much like it's for you to and shine. And yet in a very streamlined way. Yeah. I designed it to be flexible, to put the spaces together in various different ways, depending on if somebody's just renting one of the suites or a suite plus the whole kitchen, in which case, you know, there's the patio and the wood-burning oven and the Santa Maria grill and all that stuff. So it's a place to that's like a blank canvas, mm-hmm. you know, and then you bring your vegetables from the farmer's market and you make it your own. People meet from, you know, L.A., San Francisco, meet halfway for family reunions and other kind of stuff, and they just cook. Yeah. They cook all weekend. And you do um, classes, but you only do it for a season, I think, during the year, right? We're not really doing scheduled classes for the public anymore. We're mm. concentrating more on private classes. Oh, and okay. also team building has become a huge yeah. thing for us. People yeah. just love it. They come out at the end and they're like, oh my God, I love my coworker. That's that's a huge... I was talking to somebody recently who's doing things like that. It's very lucrative. Um, and also, yeah, it's it's a team building thing that kind of probably feels good to be part of. I have the greatest testimonials from people like Mind Body mm-hmm. and Topless Creek and Zenaida and Chateau Margine. Lots of the wineries do it, and then they also do they also bring their wine club for a winemaker dinner. If if they don't have a facility like that at their own winery, then this is the perfect venue to have their wines shine. And I love the great challenge to me is to design a menu to fit their wines. Yeah. I love that reverse wine pairing thing. I do too. I have a million books, and then I talk to various people like Ian at Sam's Kitchen, Ian Adamo, and he's a great advisor. Or when I work with Amy Butler from Ranchero Cellars a lot to do reverse wine pairing, and I'll I'll text her, and I'll go, can I put some some lemongrass in there? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine, or some other thing. And she's like, "Eh, not so much. Yeah, yeah, and she's honest with you. Oh, yeah, we we do it all the time, and we're very, we have a nice working relationship. I have to say, I'm sad that you're not going to be doing, are you not doing any public classes or just very um, 
restricted. I'm not going to say not any at this point, but having to sell 14 spots yeah. and then people cancel and um, it's just, it was too much work. And then sometimes I would only get eight people and I had to decide, do I want to go forward with yeah. it or it's not, it's not. This way they know the, the price up front of however it's going to be X amount, no matter how no many matter people what. Yeah. you have. And so you get one check and you don't get killed on the fees. And so it's just, it, it got to be a little bit too much. And I like this, but if say, for instance, if one of my friends was visiting from Italy, Pamela Sheldon Johns, if she comes mm -hmm. over here again, we will do a public class for her. Oh, awesome. Yeah. She, it's always sells out immediately. Yeah. I believe it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. are you, are you happy here? Absolutely. Yeah. It I seems mean, like you're thriving. Walking around the pasture, we have our own little super bloom in this mini pasture. We've got five acres that includes the refugio space and it's so gorgeous. I can't I can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else. And then we go to Italy and which I adore and I'm intensively learning Italian right now. Mm -hmm. And we do the same thing that we do here. Yeah. So why, why are we going? Well, okay. The food's better and I get to practice my Italian and mm -hmm. it's also very beautiful there, but we live in, I call it Tuscany with cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, you get to go riding here mm -hmm. and drive down to the beach. Yeah. I mean, there's so many choices. Let's go out to San Simeon and hike out to the point and then get a burger at Sebastian's and go down to Morro Bay and go to Tognazini's and have yeah. the oysters in garlic butter. That's the most insane dish around here. Yeah. Uh, where else would I want to be? Yeah, it's very diverse. This county is incredible in terms of what it offers. Yeah. For lots of different people. Well, let me ask you um, the question I've asked everyone, and it's a question you've probably thought about, but if you're, <laughs> you're in your hospital bed <laughs> and it's time to go, what's the last thing you're going to eat and who's going to be there? And it can be a full menu. Like, don't don't hold back. I always got to make sure I don't have too much fat. You're dying, Bridget. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's got to be a balance. You have to balance richness with brightness and acidity. Otherwise, your palate, I learned this from a Greek chef in New York, otherwise your palate gets tired. And mm. I don't care whether I'm dying or not. I don't sure. want my palate to get tired. So I want to balance out my duck confit with... Maybe some gazpacho, mm, mm -hmm. so I get the brightness and the rawness and the and the, you know, the vegetal vegetal um, character of a great gazpacho, and then I'm going to move on to the duck confit, which is really crispy, and then I would probably serve that with a little frisé salad with a Dijon vinaigrette. I'm also yeah, it might be a little heavy. I'm also very partial to huge white beans right now. Oh my gosh. My family has a bean problem. I mean, we just <laughs> bean salads, bean yeah, um purees. Do you know about Rancho Gordo? I know that name. What is that? He's the bean king. Is he here? Sonoma. Oh, okay. He's amazing. And he probably does like hair, heirloom and heirloom, all different kinds of... everything. Yeah. He has a Marcella bean, Marcella Hazan's favorite bean. He has, a, And he grows these beans all over, mostly Mexico. Yeah. And uh, they are... He, he has these royal Corona beans yeah. that are huge and creamy. Mm. Uh, and I learned from that same Greek chef, 
I learned the gigante bean with tomatoes and feta. Mm. And so you got the saltiness of the feta, the creaminess of the beans, and then the brightness and the yeah. acidity of the tomatoes. It's, and it's a baked, so it's like a twice-cooked bean dish. Mm. It comes out in a casserole type thing. I love it. Couldn't be any better. It's and one of my favorite dishes. Beans are kind anywhere. of magical also <laughs> because they have that protein mm-hmm. in the carb. At the same time, I mean, they, they could sustain you for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's the perfect food. So you're having that. What are you drinking with it? Well, something for every course, obviously. Although I'm much more of a white wine drinker. Same. Huh. Well, I'd probably have to have a white Rioja with the gazpacho since I enjoyed my time in Spain from a wine standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the with the duck confit, you'd have to find something with a little bit of acidity on it. I love politically incorrect Chardonnays, but I couldn't <laughs> drink that with the duck confit. Do you mean like the big ones, the big mm-hmm. Chardonnays? Good for you for saying so. You know, let's not call it cougar juice, okay? <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Rombauer? Do you love Rombauer? I love Rombauer. Yeah. And I if the budget it. was no object, we would have Farniente. Yeah. Um, actually, if I'm dying, if I need acidity, I'll just drink, I don't know, water. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that you're the first person to say, I would drink water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and are you a dessert person? Um, not so much because there are two kinds of cooks in the world. They're the savory cooks and the sweet cooks. Yeah. But I do, um, I do have some favorites. I like cheesecake mm, mm-hmm. and I like pears poached in red wine. And for the new wine country cookbook, that one yeah. that I did about this region, there is a, there's a tart in which I poach the pears in Zinfandel. So they're ruby red, gorgeous. They look like jewels mm. and then cut them in half and fan them in a tart base that's been lined with melted chocolate. And then I think there, I believe there is a, I mean, I'm always going to save time when I can. I think I scattered it with crumbled up almond macaroons to give a little texture on the top. I hardly ever make that because it's more ambitious than I normally am. Mm. Dessert. I mean, my go-to dessert is dove bars. Uh, Yeah. Simple. (laughs) It's right there all the time. Or Casey, um, because of this lack of dessert, focus on my part has developed a couple of he likes to make a um clafouti yeah and also the salted caramel cheesecake mm. which is really really good it sounds like you're gonna be okay on your deathbed <laughs> well i'm surprised that i chose the duck confit but that well partially because i'm making some right now as we mm. as we speak mm-hmm. but i love that crispiness yeah. to it and then if you get it should be a shattering on the outside and then very very moist and toothsome on mm-hmm. the inside and then I always I always I try to turn everything into a salad mm. so I love that that's I where I'm that. getting the acidity from yeah. is from that Dijon vinaigrette and that yeah. balances the richness of the of the duck I love it someday I'll have you over you can you can share things with do me. you realize how honored I would be oh it's there aren't very many people who invite me to dinner unfortunately it's very sad I can't (laughs) say that what I serve you will be I actually wrote a piece this past year about how I love food but I'm really not much of a cook but I'm curious and I think that that doesn't matter if you if you're curious and passionate then it doesn't matter I always like 
what my host likes. I'm yeah. so excited. I'm so excited to be cooked for. I just yeah. <laughs> that's that's what everyone should take away. Just invite Bridget over. Oh, <laughs> grateful, grateful. Well, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for letting me come to your house and well, talk to thanks you. Thanks for coming all the way up here. I'm happy to. I rarely get a chance to tell these crazy stories from the early days. So I um, love it. How nice yeah. to be able to speak to a kindred spirit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll go to see the gold bench together. Yes, indeed. Let's yeah. make a plan. Okay. I'll keep you in touch with what happens. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Bridget. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Thanks again for listening to Consumed. Special thanks to Chris Lambert, who advised me and edited the show. Want to hear more? Visit letsgetconsumed.com for more tasty interviews and news about upcoming episodes. And please share Consumed with a friend. The more, the merrier. Until next time, this is Jamie Lewis.